Welcome to this edition of Forecast Direct. I'm Leo Feller, Senior Economist with the UCLA Anderson Forecast, and we're very pleased to have with us today Severin Borenstein. He's a professor at uh, the UC Berkeley Haas School of Business. Uh, Severin, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Um, so we wanted to talk to you uh, about what's going on in uh, oil production, in gasoline markets, uh, and get a sense you know, from you what we can expect going forward. So uh, a series of questions, right, just to kind of get us set up. Why did oil and gasoline prices increase so much over this past year? So first, we have to go back further, of course, to the backdrop of the pandemic, <clears throat> when we saw oil prices drop very suddenly, because demand, 50% of the demand disappeared pretty much overnight. Uh, crude oil prices dropped down to the low 30s. There was that one glitched day when they actually went negative, but oil really wasn't traded at that price. Um, but we did see very, very cheap oil, and we saw very cheap gasoline prices associated with that. Uh, even then, the, mar the futures market didn't think that was going to last and that oil prices would go back up again, although not to the levels we're talking about now. Um, and then what happened were two things, both on the demand and the supply side. On the supply side, when oil prices really plummeted, we saw a lot of production uh, get taken offline. Uh, we saw this in the United States, but we also saw it in other places. Uh, and it turned out that bringing that production back online uh, was more challenging than a lot of people thought. Uh, we bring in, getting the parts because of some of the supply chain disruptions that we needed for equipment, getting the workers back into these uh, oil fields, which are generally pretty remote places where workers didn't plan to hang around once the pandemic started. So they left and uh, the companies had to bring them back in. At the same time, downstream in the refining sector in the United States, a lot of old refineries that were already creaking along and were scheduled to get shut down sometime in the next five years or so, they decided now's a good time. Demand is way down. Uh, margins were disappearing. Uh, should we really keep this going through this pandemic that we don't know how long it's going to last? or should we shut it down now? And we lost about a million barrels a day of refining capacity during the pandemic. So that's what happened on the supply side. At the same time, demand came roaring back. In fact, demand for gasoline right now is pretty much where it was before the pandemic. Uh, and What's interesting about that is, as we all know, we're not going to work as much as we were before the pandemic. There's a lot more work from home. But public transit is still off about 50% from pre-pandemic levels. So I think part of this is that the economy has picked up. People are moving around more. There's a lot of pent-up demand to go places. Uh, but at the same time, part of it is also that people don't want to do it on public transit. And so we are seeing avoidance of public transit and more use of private vehicles. The combination of that growing demand and the uh, declining supply, even before Russia's attack on Ukraine, was leading us to a real jump in oil prices that were up almost to $80 a barrel before we even started talking about the Russian threat. 
Then, of course, Russia came in and invaded Ukraine. The United States slapped and the Western uh, countries slapped sanctions on Russia. That makes it harder for Russia to sell their oil. And some of that got taken off though the market, but not most of it. Uh, in fact, in some ways, the ideal from a U.S. point of view would be if Russia is still able to sell its oil, but at a deep discount. That way, Russia doesn't get as much funds and uh, the world still the world oil market doesn't take off. That's not exactly what we've accomplished. Russia is selling their oil at a discount, but because the price is so high now, even with the discount, they're making boatloads of money on it. At the same time, all the other oil companies are making really uh, huge profits right now, not because they're doing anything to manipulate the market, with the exception of Saudi Arabia, which is always manipulating the market, but because they simply uh, are in the right place at the right time when oil prices take off. So can we expect oil supply to start increasing given how high these prices are? Are we seeing uh, more uh, oil drilling in the US? Are we seeing production ramp up? We are seeing production ramp up. It is coming back more slowly than a lot of people thought it would. Uh, but I think that that combined with some concerns about a recession is put, is leading the futures market for crude oil to show much lower prices than we're seeing today. So if you go out a few years, the prices are back down in the $70 range um, from uh, where they are now, about $100 a barrel. So we've seen oil prices coming down recently. Uh, they were at 130. You know, as you mentioned right now, they're at about 100. Um, we're starting to see gasoline prices at the pump come down, but it hasn't been you know, a one-for-one -one relationship. Can you, can you talk about this relationship between crude oil prices and gasoline prices and why we're seeing this lag in gasoline prices coming down? Well, first of all, we have to be clear that the media, when they say that oil prices have come down 20% and they think gas prices should come down 20%, it's not a percentage relationship uh, because there are lots of other costs that aren't changing. In fact, are going up with inflation right now. The standard rule of thumb is that every drop in a barrel of $1 drop in a barrel of oil lowers gasoline prices, wholesale gasoline prices, 2.4 cents per gallon. Uh, with taxes, I generally round that up to about 2.5 cents at the pump. So um, the, the, what we'd expect is a $30 barrel drop in the price of crude oil would eventually come through to about a 75 cents a gallon drop in the price of gasoline. Eventually is an important word here. I, way back 25 years ago, I published a paper that actually looked at these adjustments and found that when the price of crude oil rises, the price of gasoline rises fairly quickly. The full adjustment typically shows up within a week or two. But when it falls, uh, it falls quite slowly. It generally takes three or four weeks. Uh, so it is a long lag. Um, uh, Matthew Lewis at Clemson, who is a former student of mine, has done some research showing that when prices of gasoline rise, consumers search a lot. And of course, consumer search makes the market more competitive. And so the market adjusts. But when the price of gasoline falls, consumers tend to relax and not search as much. 
And of course, that makes the market less competitive. And that means that it takes longer for that price of gasoline to follow down the price of crude oil. And that's, I think, what we're seeing, uh, a lag in the adjustment of gasoline prices to crude oil. Uh, in the long run, and the long run is a typically a month or two, they do adjust. And we are continuing to see, in fact, we've continued to see gas prices falling over the last few weeks, even though crude oil prices haven't fallen at all during that time. In states like California, how come gasoline is so much more expensive than everywhere else? Like, what are the, the main driving factors there? Yeah, California is a real outlier um, among the states. Uh, Hawaii has high gas prices, but they have a really separate and difficult gasoline market. Uh, California does burn a cleaner burning gasoline than the rest of the country, which we adopted in the 90s. And for some reason, even states like Utah that have huge pollution problems have never followed. Um, so we use a cleaner burning formulation. Typically, people say that costs 10 cents a gallon or less to extra to produce. Uh, California has much higher taxes and environmental fees than the rest of the country. We are full tax on gasoline these days is probably around 60 cents a gallon uh, compared to a national average of about half that. Plus we have a price associated with the cap and trade market uh, that we have for greenhouse gases. Plus we have a cost associated with the low carbon fuel standard. Uh, so all of those add up to a bit over a dollar a gallon in higher prices. However, since 2015, California's prices have been higher than the rest of the country by more than can be explained by those higher taxes and fees, what I have called the mystery gasoline surcharge. It appeared in 2015 after a refinery fire in Torrance. Uh, and even when that refinery was back online, it has never disappeared. So for se seven years now, we have been paying on average about an extra 30 cents a gallon that cannot be explained by higher ta taxes and fees or the cost of our cleaner burning gasoline. Uh, that amounts now since 2015 to over $40 billion uh, in extra payments, uh, which is more than $1,000 per Californian. Do we have a sense of where who this money is going to? Is it to well, refiners? Is it to oil producers? Well, the good news is the California Assembly just uh, created a select committee to dig into why California gas prices are so high. And I'm really pleased about that. I hope we can stay focused on the mystery gasoline surcharge and not get into conspiracy theories about the world oil market, which even if they were true or nothing, California can do anything about. Um, Here's what we know. We know that the actual commodity price of California gasoline actually is about 10 cents a gallon higher than the rest of the country, reflecting the cost of our cleaner burning gasoline. So it's not taking place just in the raw commo gasoline commodity. It's taking place downstream. Now, that doesn't mean the refiners are not a big part of it, because the refiners, although they don't own gas stations, they have long-term contracts with gas stations that essentially allow them to control the price. They will say, well, we don't set the price, and that's true, but they have individualized wholesale contracts with separate stations that they can adjust so they can charge a Chevron station here in Orinda, where I live, uh, more than they charge a Chevron station three miles away in Berkeley. 
uh, and they do. So that of course means that rather than a large number of stations competing with each other, it can be just a few refineries who are setting those prices. The exception to that is off-brand stations. And what's really interesting is California has far fewer of these off-brand stations here in the Bay Area one, that Rotten Robbie is one of the small chains. They buy um, commodity gasoline and sell it through these off-brand stations. But also Costco and Safeway are, are much cheaper sellers. We have far fewer of those as a share of the market than the rest of the country does. And interestingly, using data from Matt Lewis, it's clear that if you look at Gas Buddy data, the differential between branded and unbranded in California is far larger, more than three times larger than the differential between branded and unbranded in the rest of the country. So one of the problems seems to be that we don't have as much unbranded competition really disciplining the major brands. Do you have a sense of why is it regulation? Um, I, I think right now there was a recent regulation limiting the number of new gas stations in certain areas in, in California, right? Is, is that what's preventing some of these independent, you know, non-brand name gas stations from, you know, from, you know, having a greater share of the market? Well, there has been a recent trend, although it's very recent and it hasn't gotten much traction yet, to ban new gas stations. That's not the reason we don't have unbranded stations, but there is a lot of regulation around uh, start owning and uh, starting a gas station. And that could be part of it. And I hope the Assembly Select Committee will dig into that. Uh, there are also potential issues about the ability of those off-brand stations to get gasoline through the California system. So California, the only way you can bring in gasoline is through the ports. Mm. Um, we have a couple of refineries inland, but most of the refineries are on the coast. Uh, so the refineries are almost all owned by the major brands. Two, two brands actually own 50% of the capacity. And if you're running an off-brand, you often have to bring in gasoline from out of the state and that means you have to have access to ports, you have to have access to pipelines. All of those are areas I think we need to dig into. I don't know where the problem is. And then there's the argument that some people in the industry make, which is, look, Californians just don't shop around as much. You know, if you can save 50 cents by driving three blocks, um, Californians tend to skip that, whereas in other states, they're more likely to do it. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's related to the traffic and that people think that's a bigger hassle. But for some reason, those branded, unbranded stations don't get as much business given the sometimes huge price differentials. Here in Arinda, there's an off-brand station that's a three or four blocks from the major branded stations, 60 cents a gallon cheaper. And yet the major branded stations are continuing to do a lot of business. I, I go to the off-brand both to save money and because it puts pressure on the branded stations to lower their prices. If more people did that, we would see the branded stations lowering their price more, and we would also see uh, more off-brand stations coming into the market. So shifting gears a little bit, when a lot of states have been talking about doing tax holidays for uh, gasoline, the federal government has considered doing tax holidays for uh, gasoline and taking some of the you know, the, the pressure of these higher taxes uh, off of the consumer. 
what kind of effect will this do you think this would have on consumers so a couple things to a, a good starting point to recognize is that if you compare the gas taxes we pay even in california to the negative externalities associated with burning gasoline and this isn't congestion or accident because those would also be there with electric vehicles just the pollution externalities including greenhouse gases our taxes are actually less than those negative externalities. So gasoline is not too expensive due to taxes. It's actually too cheap. Mm. Uh, if we really priced in all those externalities, the price of gasoline would be higher. Now, I still think there's potentially an argument at times for giving, giving consumers a break if you think that they are particularly deserving. You can then have an argument about should we be helping people who are facing high gas prices more than we're helping people who are facing high rents or high medical bills or high grocery costs? But this is one of the focuses right now politically, because uh, the people who uh, feel hurt by gasoline and are hurt by gasoline uh, tend to be a fairly loud uh, political constituency. The question then is, if you were to cut gas taxes, uh, how much would actually make it to the consumer? Right. At the state level, any one state cutting its gas tax, even California, is such a small part of the world oil market that it's unlikely that they're going to actually push up the price of crude oil enough that oil producers would be able to extract much of that uh, oil price, uh, that demand decrease or demand increase. Um, due to the tax cut. So any one state cutting their uh, gas tax is likely going to see almost all of that go through to consumers. There's some possibility that the refining industry, which for a while was very constrained, although it's less true now than six months ago, um, could take a bit of it. But I think the majority of that would end up going to consumers. That's not as clear when you go to a U.S tax cut, because a U.S. tax cut, the United States uses for transportation about a bit over 10% of all of the world's crude oil. And so if we cut taxes and our demand goes up a bit, that could have a noticeable effect. Still, I think that most of the pass-through would uh, go to consumers uh, and they would save it. Is that a good idea? I would, and in California, when this came up, I did argue that that's not how we should be helping uh, consumers in need. First of all, there are plenty of wealthy consumers who can afford the prices and the taxes. California has a lot of income inequality. And there are plenty of poor consumers who are getting hit by rents and uh, other rising costs and aren't driving that much. So California, in the end, and I'm very pleased about this, ended up doing a rebate that's income-based rather than doing a gas tax holiday. I think that's a far better approach. Uh, of course, if you are uh, somebody who drives a huge amount and who has to drive a big vehicle, uh, you are getting still getting hurt even if you get that rebate. But um, I still think that overall, that's a better policy. So when we talk about things that the federal government can do, they considered uh, you know, reducing federal taxes, 
Uh, they released oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Uh, now they recently announced that they're going to be doing buybacks for the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Um, what are your thoughts on this policy of using, you know, selling oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, buying it back uh, in terms of helping stabilize the, uh, the, the, the end price of gasoline? Well, I think that selling oil from the SBR was a good idea. The SBR is there to deal with geopolitical disruptions to the oil market. And I think it's pretty easy to make the case that uh, Russia invading Ukraine brought on a geopolitical disruption to the oil market, um, even if it was primarily caused by the US and Western country sanction response to that, it's still a disruption. Um, I think more generally, it's a little harder to see what, what the justification for an SPR is than it was 30 or 40 years ago. Then, then the United States was a big net importer of crude oil. Now the United States and Canada together, and I think Canada is a pretty reliable uh, partner, mm -hmm. um, uh, are a net exporter of crude oil. So I think it's harder to make the case that the US economy is really at uh, is really vulnerable to high oil prices. So if anything, I would have probably argued for a bigger SPR release right now, uh, that if we're trying to geopolitically put Russia in a more difficult position, um, getting those oil prices down would be very effective. Uh, the White House came out with a report, or the Treasury Department a few days ago, arguing that what they are doing has lowered prices 20 to 40 cents a gallon. I think it's probably closer to the low end than the high end of that estimate, but some it's probably somewhere in that range. And it's very, very hard to know exactly what the number is. Uh, so I think that was the right move, given that we have that oil in the SBR. Uh, it does have an impact. There's a harder question of, should we be refilling the SBR? Given that the primary justification of U.S. economic uh, vulnerability has gone away, and certainly just supply uh, shortage has gone away, um, and if that's not there, should we have one? Well, I just said that we have another use for it in this case, even though the U.S. is not facing a continent North American shortage. Uh, it still makes sense in this case to be able to use it as part of the economic tools that we're using to deal with Russia. So I'm torn on that. Um, it's harder. It's a harder case to make. It's ironic. The SPR actually grew out of the 1970s and the Arab oil embargo, uh, but it grew as much out of the long gas lines as the Arab oil embargo. And the long gas lines were not caused by the Arab oil embargo. They were caused by our attempts to regulate gasoline prices and keep them down even as oil prices were going up. And that's what caused the shortage. Um, and in fact, in 1991, when, during the first Gulf War, uh, crude oil prices went way up and you don't hear about the long gas lines of 1991 because there weren't any. Uh, we had deregulated gas prices and uh, the price went up, but everybody got their gasoline. And as I always say, when I'm asked about regulating gas prices, as much as people hate high gas prices, they really hate sitting in line for an hour to even be able to buy gasoline. Right. Um, what are your thoughts on using these repurchase agreements uh, for the SPR 
uh, with the you know long-term future date at which the SPR is going to be repurchasing as a way of trying to stimulate more oil production in the U.S. and try to create a, a floor uh, on you know what uh, crude oil prices uh, you know producers might receive. I think that's uh, really not going to be very effective. Uh, it's one thing to release a million barrels a day over a six-month period. It's another to say we're gradually over the next many years going to repurchase. Um, that it's just not going to, and, and at the, over that time frame, uh, producers can find markets for their product. So I don't think that it's going to have a big effect in stimulating uh, oil production. And I don't think we should be doing it for that reason, uh, since it's just going to be a small bit of the market over many, many years. Uh, and I think there's a bigger issue. If we actually make progress on decarbonizing the economy, and if we make progress on decarbonizing transportation worldwide, the price of oil is going to crash. I mean, if you just do the economics, it's pretty clear that if we took a third of the crude oil demand out, and we're going to have to do a lot more than that, um, we're not going to be seeing a constraint in the oil market. Saudi Arabia's power in the oil market disappears. And when we've had drops in crude oil demand, and the pandemic was obviously the most extreme, um, that's been demonstrated. So the real problem is going to be crude oil is going to drop I would guess to $20 or so per barrel. Uh, and at that point, our problem is going to be how do we keep the economics of EVs working when gasoline worldwide becomes super cheap? And when we need not just US policy to keep people on the road to decarbonizing, but also policy in developing countries where they can rightly make the argument that we're not the ones who put most of that CO2 up that's in the atmosphere, mm -hmm. and we're still a poor country. We need whatever's cheapest to keep growing our economy, and crude oil's super cheap. I think that's the real challenge, and, um, I, the, and trying to stimulate more production over the long run is probably not good policy. Fantastic. Well, Severin, thank you so much for joining us. This was a great conversation, uh, and I really appreciate the insights. Great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me on. All right. Thank you.